Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Luke chapter 23? And um, I'll be putting the scriptures up on screen. And we'll start. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And when Jesus hung on that cross between two criminals, he was fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 12 where it says that he, Jesus, was to be numbered with the transgressors. And over the last few weeks, on the run-up to Easter, we've been focusing our thoughts on the words of Jesus on the cross, seven sayings in all. Some of the sayings are only found in one of the Gospels, such as when we read a few moments ago, the prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, which is in Luke, but it's not in the other Gospels. And then we have Jesus speaking to his mother to take care of John the disciple and to John to take care of Mary. That's only found in John's Gospel. But our study today is based on the account of these two criminals who crucified either side of Jesus. And this account is found in three Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But I need to clarify that it's only in Luke's Gospel that we have the conversation between Jesus and one of the criminals. Let's get a fuller picture of this um, story by looking at the other two Gospels. In Matthew chapter 27, we only have two verses, verse 38 and 44. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, Matthew and Mark essentially tell us the same story. 
And they inform us that these two rebels who were crucified with Jesus, one on his right, one on his left, and that they both heaped insults on Jesus. Now at face value, that seems to contradict what we read in Luke's Gospel. Because in Luke's Gospel, he tells us that only one of the rebels um, heaped insults on Jesus. And the other, his friend, rebuked him for doing so. So, how do we explain this apparent contradiction? Well, initially, I believe they were both of the same mind. They both heaped insults on Jesus, but one of them had a change of heart. And we are told that this guy then rebuked his friend for continuing with the insults uh, upon Jesus. We're not told why. We're not told what happened. And I can't prove it, but I can, I can imagine. Because as these men were on the cross, on their crosses next to Jesus, and if they had heard, as they would have, the prayer that Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which was a prayer for his persecutors. It was a prayer for the soldiers who had treated him so harshly. It was a prayer for the religious leaders who conspired against him. It was a prayer for Judas who betrayed him. It was a prayer for the disciples who deserted him. It was also a prayer for these two men, side by side, who were continuing to heap insults upon him. Maybe that is what it took to soften this man's heart. We, we don't know. Maybe it was as Jesus looked down to his mother and had such tender concern and care for her and placing her care into the care of, and, uh, into, into the care of his trusted disciple John or the way that he spoke to John and um, asked John to take care of his mother. And maybe, maybe it was that that caused this man to reassess and to rethink. But as we think about our own lives, I'm sure that there are things that we've all come to in our lives, things that we've later regretted, things that perhaps we've tried to correct. Maybe before we were Christians, there were things that we said about God, things that we said about Jesus, things that we said about the Christian faith. And then coming to faith that we had a rethink and we, you know, we just tried to correct those. We regretted the things that we once said. Now this man wasn't the only man who changed his mind about Jesus on the cross. Because we read in Mark chapter 15 verse 39 of a, a Roman centurion. And we read there that when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. He said surely this man was the son of God. Now I find that a very poignant phrase don't you? The centurion saw how he died. Saw how he died. And that caused him to change his mind about Jesus. And he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And you know, people will observe us. People will observe the way that we act and the way that we react to life circumstances. People will look at us and to uh, Assess how we are dealing with life sufferings sometimes. And when others offend us, do we respond to them with forgiveness or do we respond with, with bitterness? 
When other people uh, will, will curse, do we bless others? Do we turn the other cheek instead of striking back? And here's the big question. When people observe us, do they change their minds about God? Do they see enough through our lives that will cause them to reassess their view on the Christian life? I believe that's what was happening on the cross. That's what happened with this guy who initially started hurling insults at Jesus and he changed his mind. Let's read this passage again. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the story of two men. They had a number of things in common. They were both criminals. They were both paying the price for their past. They were both being justly penalized for their actions. And it appears also that they both knew at least something about Jesus. The first man cries out, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And it appears that he was just simply repeating the words that he had heard other people say. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the soldiers who were passing by. We read there in verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sne sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Matthew adds something as well. He said that even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. You see, the Jews believed that uh, the Messiah, as I've said many times to you before, that the Messiah would come as a, a mighty uh, military leader leading the nation in war, breaking off the yoke of any foreign opposition, beating up, conquering the Romans. Not someone that would die in apparent weakness on a cross. And this man on the cross heard others talk about Jesus in this way. And he did the same. Isn't that similar to what many people do today? Isn't that right? That's what many, many people do today. And you know, I've come across many people who make great pronouncements about the Christian faith. It's not because they've studied Christianity themselves, but it's, it's because they've simply embraced the views of other people, their parents, the, their work colleagues, their teachers at school, their classmates. And over the years, I've heard many, many statements about the Christian faith by people who sound so convincing on times. They'll say, once you're dead, you're dead. This life is the only life that you have. Just paint the town red. Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Jesus was only a man. Science has disproved Christianity and many, many other statements. And often those statements are made by people who have just heard what other people have, saying, have been saying. And they have become their own. 
As I've often said, prejudice is a great time saver. It enables you to form opinions without looking at the facts. And um, there are many prejudiced people around, and I think there was a sense of prejudice with this man on the cross too. But as we read on, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Two men, yet two very, very different reactions. One is full of anger, full of bitterness, full of inaccurate assumptions. The other, even though he was a criminal, had a profound sense of justice. And I would say that he had a faith. And Luke provides us with quite an astounding insight into this spiritual awareness of this man. Let's look at these uh, words together. First of all, he said to the other man, don't you fear God? In other words, he is saying to him, there is a God who one day is going to settle accounts. There's a God who is going to judge the world. There's There's a God who you will have to stand before. And just to say, the things that you're saying, you won't get away with them. There's a coming judgment. That's what he's saying by that. And then he says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And he recognized that both he and the other guy were were, were sinners. That they were now receiving the penalty of their sin. That as you reap the things that you reap, uh, rather you will reap what you sow in life. In eternity, if not in this life. And then he went on to say, of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And of course what he says of Jesus is absolutely true. He had done nothing wrong. And I guess though that his views about Jesus, of who Jesus was, and the kind of Messiah that he was, his views were probably partial and incomplete. But even so, he recognized that his hope lie in Jesus and then he said Jesus remember me when you get into your kingdom even though he may have had mistaken and erroneous views he realized that his future hope he realized that his hope of life beyond the grave didn't rest in anything that he had done whether it was good or bad or indifferent in the past but it rested entirely on mercy entirely on mercy I once heard a story of a a mother who visited Napoleon on behalf of her condemned son. And the emperor told her that the young man who had committed the offense twice, um, justice was demanded and that justice was the death penalty. But sir, she pleaded, I don't ask for justice, I ask for mercy. And Napoleon said, well, he doesn't deserve it. No, she said, but it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And she was right. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. You see, mercy would not be mercy if the criminal deserved it. Mercy is only mercy when we deserve nothing. And in those sayings of the thief on the cross, he made four important statements there, which can be summarized in just four words. God, sinners, Jesus, and mercy. And what he was saying there, that God is our judge, That we are sinners unable to save ourselves. That Jesus is the only answer. 
And our only hope is not on anything that we do or anything that we have ever done, but it is on his mercy alone. When I was a young Christian, we used to sing a hymn that oozed uh, the kind of theology which is seldom seen in some modern songs. And please, I'm not against modern songs. I love them. I really do. But this song that we used to sing uh, was written 350 years ago. And it was written by a man, Augustus Montague Toplady. What a great name. And these, these are the words. Let me put them up for you. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. I tell you what, that's strong meat theologically, it really is. But it's an astounding truth. And when I sing those words, and I don't sing them very often these days, but when I sing those verses, I just have goosebumps on my goosebumps because the writer there is reminding us that our only claim to fame with God is his mercy. And his mercy is the thing that we want to sing about most. And it's God's mercy alone who has clothed us in his righteousness, not that we have any boast of ourselves or anything that we have to offer. And because of his mercy, we can fear nothing. And if we are in Christ, our sin is hidden from view. Wow. Isn't that great? You know, it's put in a rather quaint way and it's put in a, quite a heavily theological wording. But what a great truth that is. And the thief on the cross, he had no chance to grow in knowledge. He had no opportunity to be baptized. He had no opportunity to serve God's purposes in the world. His understanding was partial. And it was incomplete, but he was still welcomed by Jesus. Isn't that great? He was still welcomed by Jesus. And that's what the Bible calls grace. And the truth is this. God saves us, not according to the completeness of our knowledge, but on the basis of our small and imperfect faith. And I want to say hallelujah to that. It's not because of our, our knowledge, otherwise none of us would, uh, would, would make it. But it's on the basis of our small and imperfect faith. You see, no person is saved because they understand the doctrine of the atonement. They're actually saved because of the atonement. There's a difference. They are saved because of what Christ has done upon a cross and through his resurrection. That is what has brought us salvation, not because we actually understand the full workings of that. No one is saved because of the soundness of their theology. That we are saved because we have trusted in the light that we have received. That's so important to understand. You see, a person's ignorance does not necessarily disqualify them from God's grace. You can say hallelujah to that one. <laughs> you know, that is tremendous. Let me say that again. A person's ignorance does not necessarily disqualify them from God's grace. And I've often used a, an illustration of a hypothetical Amazonian tribesman on this. An Amazonian tribesman who has no contact whatsoever with the outside world. An Amazonian tribesman who has never had any, uh, never heard the name of Christ. That person will not be judged in the same way as someone who has been taught about Jesus. That God judges a person on the response to the light that they have received. Consider Abraham, for example. 
Abraham, we are told in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What on earth does that mean? To put it in a more popular way, Abraham was saved. He was saved because he believed in the Lord. But you may say, well, what did he believe? Because he lived a couple of thousand years before Jesus. How was he saved? He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about his his death. He didn't know about his resurrection. He believed in the light that he had in his day. God promised him a family in his old age. And we are told that Abraham believed God's word. And because of that, God credited to him his righteousness. In other words, God saved the man. And we can read of him in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the great heroes of faith, that he was one of God's superheroes of faith. And yet he was a man who had not even heard of Christ. The rebel cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's been a lot of uh, debate over what Jesus meant by paradise. Is it heaven? Is it somewhere else? Well, the word that Jesus used came from an old Persian word which meant garden. And Jesus provides this image of a blissful garden, a parkland of rest and tranquility. And the word is uh, actually used on three occasions in the New Testament. Paul uses it on one occasion in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, where Paul speaks of this incredible, incredible spiritual experience that he has being caught up into heaven, and he's not really sure how to explain it. And words are so insufficient and inadequate for him to do that. And this is what he says, But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astonishing that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. And we get this wonderful picture of what paradise is like. And his language is so inadequate that he can't explain of what he had seen and experienced. The third occasion is found in uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. Again, the picture language there is that of a beautiful garden of tranquil bliss and, and prosperity. And whilst there's been a a lot of focus in people's discussion on this word paradise, where is it and what's it like, there are two other more important words in Jesus' response to the criminal. And as you can see, they're the words, with me. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me. That's where the emphasis needs to be, I think, in that sentence. With me in paradise. You know, it's the most important thing in that statement. And the words with me imply a consciousness of existence. And whether we call the afterlife paradise or heaven is irrelevant. The fact is that we will be with Christ, which is the all-important thing. The Apostle Paul um, tells of his time. Do you remember at the end of Acts, Acts 28, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome for two years? And during that time, he wrote four New Testament letters. And one of the letters that he wrote was Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, he tells of what's going on there for him at that time. 
And he says that um, um, a judgment is going to be made on him, whether he, he would live or die, whether he would be martyred for his faith, or whether he would be set free from that. And that's the context. And he writes some remarkable words in Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? That's an incredible statement. For me, it would be a no-brainer. I want to live, thank you very much. But he was doing this. There was a tension. He wasn't sure whether he really wanted to live, to carry on, to be fruitful for Christ, or whether he wanted to be with Christ. And there was this tension, quite astonishing. I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. Wow, what a statement again. And Paul is telling us here that to die isn't some kind of soul sleep, where you die and go into some kind of uh, unconscious existence until Jesus returns. And some people believe that. Some of the cults believe that. Rather, it's a place of conscious existence. It's better by far to be with Christ, he says. Today, another very important word there. Today, you will be with me in paradise. <coughs> you don't need to wait for some day in some distant future. You see, when our loved ones, and many of us here have loved ones who have parted this world, the moment they parted this world, they were with Jesus. They were passed on from this present existence and all its sorrows and trials and problems and pain into an existence where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The words that we find in Revelation 21. <coughs> and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't it great? You know, the promise to the thief on the cross is our promise. That we will be with him in paradise. That we will be assured of eternity with him. And you know what? Not even that is the end. <coughs> Not even that is the end. And this is where I think that sometimes Christians get all confused and mixed up in their theology on what's going to happen when. You see, our ultimate goal isn't paradise or what we sometimes call heaven, where we exist in a bodiless soul. Because when Christ comes back, we are told that we shall receive new bodies. There will be a body resurrection. Paul speaks of it in Romans 8, verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, where we are promised a new kind of existence, that we will have a body like the risen Christ, that there will be new heavens and a new earth. And I love the way that uh, Tom Wright, Tom Wright is um, probably the foremost um, amazing theologian, New Testament theologian in the world. He was the Bishop of Durham, he's a great hero of mine, and he speaks of this as the life after the life after death. I quite like that as a phrase, absolute, perfectly sound theology, the life after the life after death. Because as Christians, so often we just think of this life, and then we are with Jesus. Yes, we're with Jesus. And we are in this paradise, this place of conscious existence. But there is coming a day when there is yet something more. And that something more is to experience 
the bodily resurrection, the dead in Christ shall rise, says uh, Paul. They shall rise first. And it speaks of that time when Christ will come back. And that will be the ushering in of a change in, in the cosmos. There will be a, an ushering in of this time of new heavens and a new earth. Uh, sorry, I've gone off on a tangent. <coughs> Let me finish. This story this morning is a, a story of two men. Two men, similar in some ways, and they were dissimilar in others. But these two men that we've read about this morning, they are representative of all of humanity. They're representative of all of us here today. And one man embraced the views of others. He heard what they were saying. He hardened his heart. And he was unwilling to trust Jesus with his life. The other man, he recognized that Jesus was his only hope. And he was willing to take a chance on Jesus. He was willing to put all his eggs in one basket. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that very day, he was welcomed into heaven, into paradise with Jesus. And that account shows us very clearly this morning that no one is so sinful or so corrupt that he or she has gone past that point of no return with God, where God cannot save them. And it shows us that no one is too late. And it shows us that no one can be disqualified. And I'm just going to leave that with you this morning. Because I guess in a congregation of this size this morning, there are people who will be represented by one or of the other of those two men. One who will say, yes, Lord, I want to trust in you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there will be others who have hardened their hearts. And I just want to encourage you this morning. There is no sitting on the fence with Jesus. It's either one way or the other. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? My prayer is that today, if this is where you are at, that you will take that plunge, that you will take that plunge, and you say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to put my trust in you. Remember me when you get into your kingdom. And I'd like us to pray now. Would you sit down for a moment, please? And I just want us to pray, and I want us to just ask ourselves this morning a personal question. Where is it that we are? Which of those two men represents us? Are we the person who has hardened our hearts? Are we the person who truly wants to reach out to Jesus and if that's you, then the good news is that Jesus will not cast you aside. He will not turn his back on you. He will welcome you with arms open wide. And if that's you this morning, I just want you in the quietness of your heart, quietly on the inside, just to say, Jesus... That's me. That's me this morning. I want...
to be just like that guy who called out to you. I want to know your presence in my life. I want to be assured that one day when it's my time, I too will be welcomed into heaven. Say it in your own words, quietly to yourself. For those who are already assured, insured, assured of where you stand this morning, I'm sure your prayer is one of thanksgiving and praise for all that God has done in your life. That's certainly my response.